Welcome to Peak True Crime, a podcast telling of dark tales and dastardly deeds in Derbyshire and the Peak District. Derby, 2020. A few days ago, I was pulling up beside a park near where I live. The dog was in the boot, and after a bit of a drive that had seen him sat still for a couple of hours, the plan was to let him stretch his legs and do what dogs do in the park before returning home. As I came to a halt, around the corner ahead of me came running three young teenage boys. They were probably about 13 or so, and out of breath, more as a result of nervous anxiety than physical exertion. Around 20 metres along the path from where they'd run, they'd spotted a fire. It had set alight a tree, but I wasn't to worry. They were in the process of calling the fire brigade, and all was in hand. The mannered maturity of teenagers is always a joy to see. With this mini-drama unfolding before them, they adopted the pose and presence that they'd seen demonstrated by adults in similar situations. Channeling their inner bloke, they spoke on the phone to the 999 operator, like would a world-weary 30-year-old. <laughs> Some clown set fire to the park on such and such road. Yeah, 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 if you come down from the high street, they'll, uh, you'll get the engine through, no problem. I'll wave you in from there. The three of them seemed to have everything under control, but as the only actual adult in the vicinity, I thought I should check for myself and at least wait for the fire service to arrive. Turning down the path where the boys had run from, there was indeed a fire. It wasn't a large fire, probably no more than a foot or so square. It was burning rather ferociously though, and the frames were probably about four or five feet high, occasionally catching and dying on the low-hanging branches of a tree it was set below. The previous few days had seen some dreadful weather, and the ground around it and the tree above it was still heavy with rain. It was never going to spread or even, as the heavens opened yet again and a deluge arrived, survive. It had clearly been set on purpose. There wasn't any other explanation. The fire brigade would deal with it though, as they did the 402 deliberately set fires across Derbyshire in the first quarter of 2023 alone. Some fires are small and speculative, like this one, in and of itself not really a risk to person or property, but still, better to be safe than sorry. Others though are larger and more dangerous, targeted, and with the potential to cause millions of pounds of damage and endanger the safety of the public. Over a period of just two months, between October and December 2020, a series of fires were set across Derby, targeting schools and churches, The perpetrator disrupted the education of thousands of children, near destroyed a church that had stood for over 600 years and inflicted damage, the repair cost of which currently stands in excess of £15 million and rising.
with just over 300 children on its roll, St Mary's Catholic Primary School, less than 500 metres north of the recently opened Derby Museum of Making, had undergone a period of renewal. In 2018, it had joined a wider network of Catholic schools in the area, Sir Ralph Sherwin Catholic Multi-Academy Trust. The transition had gone smoothly enough, but like any period of change, there were new ways of working for everyone, and head teacher Amanda Greaves had done her best to support the staff and pupils through the transition. Typically, just as things are settling down, a new and unprecedented challenge hits the school community. The global coronavirus pandemic. Overnight, educational provisions shifted online, with teachers and pupils having to adapt to a new model of schooling, all under the cloud of uncertainty and fear of what was to come. September 2020 saw a gradual return to normal though, or maybe it was an acceptance of a new normal. Lateral flow tests and hand sanitizers, classroom ventilation and hybrid learning were just part of the evolving school routine, and however much they jarred, however difficult they were to maintain, at least the kids were back in school. It wasn't long though, after 6.30 in the morning, on Saturday the 1st of October, that head teacher Amanda Greaves found herself standing in front of a school, a school that was burning red through the early morning mist. An ambulance had been passing the school around an hour earlier and noticed flames in the building. Within 10 minutes of the crew alerting Derbyshire Fire and Rescue Services, the first responders had arrived on the scene, but it was too late to save the school. The flames had already taken hold. Arriving on site, the head teacher, she was met by officers from Derbyshire Fire and Rescue. Six engines were in attendance, along with two aerial platforms and a mobile command centre. The central third of the single-storey brick building was ablaze, with the fire still spreading left and right. Locals advised to keep windows and doors closed due to smoke. For the rest of the morning, and well into the afternoon, Firefighters worked first to control and then extinguish the fire. And it wasn't until 6pm in the evening that the last flames were laid to rest. Speaking to the press, Amanda Greaves expressed dismay at the devastation the fire had brought and the upheaval it would mean to the pupils, not only at the school, but also at the adjacent nursery. The disruption to the education of 350 children would again return, with home learning and online classes offered until temporary accommodation could be identified and adapted. It'd be spring before teachers were able to welcome students to a hastily but lovingly refurbished temporary school at St James's House, an office block just a few minutes' walk from the original school site. While it was a terrible thing to happen, deliberately set fires at schools aren't as rare as you might have thought. While over the course of a normal period, 45% of fires attended by emergency services are malicious, for schools, the number jumps to over 75%. Every year in the UK, between 1,400 and 1,800 cases of arson attacks in schools are reported, significantly affecting one in eight educational institutions. Since 2014-15, 
there's been a 15% rise in such attacks, with research by the National Union of Teachers suggesting that between 90,000 and 100,000 school children annually experience disruptions to their education at the cost of approximately £100 million. By the evening of the fire, with it safely extinguished, a plan was put in place as to how the forensic investigation of what remained of the school would be undertaken come first light. The work carried on through Monday, but, before they'd made any meaningful progress, Derbyshire Fire and Rescue were called out to another building ablaze. Another head teacher stood before their school and mourned its destruction. Another community of children having their lives turned upside down. At 1.40am on Tuesday the 6th of October, less than 48 hours after the fire at St Mary's, Derbyshire Fire and Rescue were called to an all-too-familiar blaze just four miles away at Ravensdale Primary School in Mickleover. Clive Stanback, the incident commander, marshalled 75 officers and their 12 appliances. Speaking to the media, he explained that crews worked swiftly to control the spread of the fire. Sadly, large parts of the infant school have suffered extensive damage. Tragically, he continued, this is the second school fire in Derbyshire in less than 48 hours. Both fires are now under control and under separate investigations. We'll continue to work jointly with our police colleagues, though, to investigate the cause of each of these fires. The community didn't need the commander to draw a connection between the fires at St Mary's and Ravensdale. Calls were made on local radio and on social media for guards to be posted at schools outside the working day and in the long term, sprinklers be fitted to the entire school estate around the county. The collective view was emerging and establishing itself that the schools in the city were being targeted by an arsonist and it was only a matter of time before he struck again. Over the coming days, while at the same time bracing themselves for a follow-up attack, the fire and police authorities were investigating the causes of the fire. Accelerant of a similar nature were used in both attacks, virtually ruling out the possibility that what had occurred were two coincidental accidents. A similarity too was that, on both occasions, the school security alarms had been triggered prior to the fire alarms activating, suggesting an intruder to the building was responsible. A massive CCTV sweep was made of the surrounding areas, along with an interrogation of what ANPR was available on any of the major roads in the vicinity. Such work, though, takes time, however, but one other, more immediate line of inquiry did bear fruit. Police looked into other break-ins at schools in the area, the theory being that the perpetrator may have attempted to do so before, or that the fire setting was an escalation from petty vandalism to arson. This piece of work threw up an immediate lead. On October the 1st, Two nights before the fire at St Mary's School, at 1.30 in the morning, an intruder broke in through a window, caused extensive damage at Murray Park Secondary School in Mickleover, a 10-minute walk from Ravensdale Junior School. 
After removing a spade from the shed on the site, he smashed at the science classroom, leaving a two-word note written for whoever discovered the scene. It read, simply, Fuck you. Reviewing the hundreds of hours of CCTV, doorbell and security footage was a long process. With every day that passed, the joint investigation team of the police and fire officers knew they could be possibly running against the clock. As the sun went down every evening, there was a concern that at some point they'd receive a late night or early morning call, informing them that another school was ablaze. Thankfully, in the immediate aftermath of those two dreadful nights in early October, none came. There had been a fire in the toilet block at the Orangery in Markeaton Park, a fire in a pedal bin. It was almost banged between the two school blazes and needed to be thoroughly investigated, but, as so far, all was quiet. While they weren't discounting the idea that both schooled fires were unconnected, the second, a copycat response to the first, the methodology of both incidents was too similar. The timings and the proximity suggesting a clear connection. If it were the same person, if one individual was responsible for both fires, then the most important question beyond identifying them was what would stop them from attacking another school. Was it inevitable that another school would be targeted? Within ten days of the fire at Ravensdale, they received their answer. On the evening of the 16th of October, not a school, but a church was attacked. An outbuilding at St Matthew's in Darley Abbey, to the north of the city, was deliberately set ablaze. Thankfully, the flames were unable to penetrate the thick, gritstone walls of the 18th century church. Reverend Peter Barham, the vicar of the parish, was concerned about the damage but with the pragmatism that's almost a clichéd characteristic of a Church of England priest, was thankful as, to use his own words, it could have been far worse. While a different kind of target from the previous attack, in the very early stage of the investigation, police were determined to not only capture all available forensic evidence, but to show the community that they were tackling the threat to property head-on. At one point later in the morning, we had two detectives the priest continued talking to the media. A police CSI photographer, two police officers, a fire investigator, a fire engine and crew, and a fire sniffer dog and his handler. All of them professional, skilled and caring. They nearly all said, Are you okay, Vicar? The dog didn't say that, but he did wag his tail to me. For all the appreciation of the Vicar, for all the work of the forensic teams, there was nothing the authorities were able to do to stop the attacks. The following evening, another church was targeted. This time, thankfully, the consequences were far less destructive. At St Paul's Church in Quandon, the damage in fact wasn't noticed until the following morning. A parishioner noted a large black soot marks up against the exterior wall at the side of the church. On close inspection, the superficial damage continued up one side of an 18th century stained glass window. Some specialist cleaning products and no shortage of elbow grease saw the impact of the fire, set when rubbish bins were pulled to the side of the building and deliberately set alight, 
mitigated easily enough. As police and fire investigators were interrogating the site of the fire, a constable noticed a slim teenage boy loitering just beyond the police cordon, watching the authorities at work. As the day wore on, though, the teenager, who had disappeared when his presence was noticed by the officer guarding the scene, he returned and was spotted in the grounds, and as a result was approached by the police. The boy, who lived locally, said he'd just been passing by on his bicycle, had seen all the investigatory activity and stopped to see what was going on. Asked to turn out his pockets, the teenager, who gave his name as Johnny Brady, presented to the officer a disposable lighter. As carrying a 99 pence plastic lighter isn't in of itself a crime, its discovery, combined with Brady's behaviour, provided officers with grounds to arrest him, collect fingerprints and a DNA sample before releasing him pending further investigation. The crime scene work at St Paul's Church delivered only one meaningful lead. A pair of latex gloves were found beneath a bush just metres from the fire. Bagged and sent for analysis, those gloves would go on to prove the first piece of significant forensic evidence and just the break the investigators were hoping for. For reasons unbeknown, once the forensic tent was packed away after the fire at St Paul's Church, once the latex gloves had been sent off to begin their process and analysis, the deliberate fires that had blighted the city of Derby came to a stop. Whether it was a temporary pause or a complete secession was anyone's guess. With the busy season of bonfire night approaching at the start of November, within the fire and rescue services, there was no small amount of relief. But each evening's watch at fire stations across the city, the apprehension remained that maybe this was the night the arsonists, who had already caused millions of pounds of damage, would strike again. The wait wouldn't last long, however, because on the afternoon of Thursday the 3rd of December, two near-simultaneous fires broke out at either end of All Saints Catholic Church in Mackworth. The fire crew arrived in a matter of minutes, but by then, the entirety of the inside of the building was damaged, the burning roof collapsing in on itself, the eternal columns and walls cracking in the intense heat of the blaze. It wasn't until well into the night that the fire was brought under control, but the light of the dawn brought little relief. The thick stone walls were all that was left of the church that had stood for centuries, the heavy gritstone retained the intense heat of the fire for almost a week afterwards. Over the course of two months at the end of 2020, Churches and schools across Derby had been subject of a sustained and progressively more destructive campaign of arson. Police believed that one individual was responsible for all the attacks, 
and ever since the first fire in the series at St Mary's Catholic Primary School, police have been working not only to confirm the link, but also to identify the suspect. Reviewing CCTV overlooking the fire at All Saints Catholic Church in Mackworth, it was quickly discovered that a teenage boy wearing a hoodie and tracksuit bottoms and carrying a black backpack was seen cycling away from the scene at speed. Inquiries into the other fires unearthed similar footage of a similar teenage boy on a bicycle. It was a teenage boy wearing a hoodie and tracksuit bottoms stood by his bicycle that had been questioned when seen loitering around the police cordon at St Paul's Church in Quarndon. Johnny Brady was the name of that teenage boy, and within two hours of the fire at All Saints Church, two hours since the last fire in the series would be found lit, police would have him in custody. It wasn't that all this information was collected and analysed on the night. In what they thought was a separate incident, police were called to a house in Mackworth to reports of the disturbance. Approaching the front door of the property and stepping inside, they passed the black backpack in the hall. Before them stood Johnny Brady, a slight smell of fire on his clothes he was wearing. The clothes, a hoodie and a pair of tracksuit bottoms. The phrase, caught red-handed, somewhat unsurprisingly, derives from the idea that if a murder or violent act is committed, and an individual is discovered leaning over the victim, his hands red with blood, it's almost always the case that he's the guilty party. I say almost always, because though Brady was arrested wearing the same clothes as the probable arsonist, and smelt of fire, that wasn't enough for a jury to convict. It was the case, therefore, that before the trial, a huge amount of additional work was undertaken by detectives to tie him to his crimes. Reconstructions of various pieces of CCT evidence which placed them at the locations of the relevant times were undertaken. A teenager identical height and build was used to confirm that the individual caught on the numerous cameras was of a similar stature to Brady. Further DNA tests were commissioned, on not only the latex gloves found at the churchyard, but also the note reading F.U. that was left at the break-in at Murray Park Community Secondary School. Both came back positively matching Brady. More damning incrimination, though, was discovered during interrogation of his computer. Not only had there been numerous searches for coverage around all the attacks, but on the days preceding each one, each specific location had been extensively researched, including time spent on Google Street View, assessing possible ways in and out of the properties. When Brady was arrested at his home in relation to the arson attacks, as well as for assault on an individual that very same evening, he admitted to officers that he committed, and I quote, I think ten arsons and three burglaries. And though he'd later retract his confession... While remanded in custody, he told a prison chaplain that he'd torched the church and appeared to the priest unapologetic, confiding that he got a kick out of what he'd done. 
Despite the retraction of the statement, Brady gave to the officers at his arrest. He pleaded guilty at court to all charges of arson and warned of assault. In mitigation, his barrister, Kevin Waddington, explained to the court that Brady's offences were as a result of a serious medical condition or learning disability. His health at the time of these offences was likely to have been worse than it is now. The defendant is noted as saying he'd prefer a prison sentence rather than going back to hospital. Hospital, however, was the decision of the court. Under the Mental Health Act, Brady was detained to receive treatment for what primarily assessments identified as ADHD and personality disorder. Clearly displeased with what he was hearing, as he was being sentenced, Brady began to swear and shouted, Fuck you! Send me to prison! You fucking wanker! and spat at the judge before being taken down. The hospital order, to which Brady was the subject, was handed down with the intention that it would allow him to be detained in a psychiatric hospital and receive appropriate treatment to address his behaviour. The goal of such orders is to provide the necessary care and support to promote the recovery after which the person's case is reviewed and they may be discharged if they're considered no longer a risk to themselves or to others. That was the hope for Brady, that he'd get the help he needed, be discharged from care without fanfare and slip into obscurity, never to be heard of again. Unfortunately, that isn't how this story pans out. At 3.30 on Christmas Eve in 2022, he absconded from St Andrew's Hospital, the secure mental health facility in Northampton, to which he'd been sent. Somewhat bizarrely, two and a half hours later, a second patient escaped the facility. Though his absconsion was unconnected, 43-year-old Nicholas Courtney did have something in common with Brady. He too had been given a hospital order. His, however, was in relation to several sexual offences. The details of these offences were that just after midday on the 31st of January 2022, he was seen by a member of staff standing with his trousers around his ankles, urinating on the changing room floor in full view of visitors at his local swimming pool, after which he jumped into the water. He was subsequently asked to get out of the water though, and after leaving the building, a few minutes later, a member of the public called the police to report Courtney, who was stood naked in a nearby children's playground, pushing an empty swing. Within minutes, the police arrived at the scene and tracked him to a petrol station. Seeing the police, the naked Courtney ran to escape the officers, who pursued him through the streets of Topham in Devon before arresting him. On his release two days later, Courtney returned to the swimming pool and groped a female member of the public, before again fleeing. Within an hour, Courtney confronted a woman in the park at the adjacent sports ground. From a hiding place behind a bush, he approached and confronted another woman, who was with her young daughter, and touched her breasts, before being confronted by her husband. Half an hour later, a 17-year-old girl, who was with her 11-year-old brother, reported a man appearing from the bushes, standing close and reaching out as if to touch her. 
detained at the Northamptonshire Hospital as Brady. The two separate and seemingly unconnected escapes caused genuine concern in the area and around the hospital. Thankfully though, Courtney was tracked down within just a few hours. The story of Brady's escape though was altogether more complicated. Three fires were deliberately set within a couple of miles of the facility. Small bin fires, but each one larger than the last, before Brady was detained and returned to the hospital on New Year's Eve, after almost a week on the run. strolling with the dog along a dirt track. Uh, to my right there is a long red brick wall that seems well very new and it runs between just about where I am now and down to the road ahead which must be about 20-30 metres or so. Uh, if I'm allowed to use the word funky I would describe it as funky because while it's quite high and um, it sort of maintains its height all the way along, it curves its way sort of nearer and further from the track, kind of undulating in these smooth curves. Um, Given it's set in such a regulation country setting it seems somewhat out of place um, but not in a bad way there's quite a substantial house on the other side um, and yeah it's sort of fun and really it's a it's a bit of a giggle compared to the semi-ruins of a uh, all Saints Church that I've just come from. I've spent the day visiting all the sites of the fires that Brady set and what is so incredible is how close to each other they all are. If I stop and stand with my back to the church and the funky wall on my right on my left, over the flat, uh, but you know, chaotically charming farmland, I can see, I think, Mark Eaton Park, where the fire was set in the toilets at the cafe. The church here, as I said earlier on, lost its roof entirely, and the the entire interior was destroyed. The spire still stands and work's been done to protect it from the elements and any more deterioration, I think, while all the necessary approvals are passed for the restoration work to begin. From what I've read, it seems that everything's in place now and they just need it 
sort of rubber stamping by the diocese before they can push on and start for proper. Ravensdale School has been rebuilt and the pupils have moved back in now. Um, not long ago, I think, maybe just before the summer. Uh, the nursery's been rebuilt too. And when I was there before, you could hear all the kids playing outside for nearly two years I think the whole the whole school community was split across three different sites so it must be a joy to have everyone back under the same roof or the same sky I suppose at St Mary's School I think it's hoped that that's going to be completed by Christmas this year so that's 2023 I know nothing about construction so from my brief inspection I would be unable to say whether it's on course but fingers crossed fingers crossed it will be both the new schools look like they're going to be quite swish and uh, there seems to be quite a lot of commitment to make them open and welcoming. I know with St Mary's in particular there's an emphasis on linking the inside and the outside as much as they can, so linking the indoor classrooms to outdoor learning. So there's lots of There's a lot of windows, there's lots of light, there's lots of planting around the grounds and pathways and trails. And it seems in some ways that as a result of what happened, the schools have been given a chance to reimagine what they are and what they stand for. And it seems like it's what they've taken. As far as I know, Brady's still receiving treatment, albeit probably of a, a slightly more secure nature. He's at St Andrew's Hospital in, in Northampton. I think knee-jerk reactionaries may well bellow that punishment is what's needed and complain about the money that's spent on what's effectively um, an, an indefinite stay in hospital. I think from the latest figures it costs something like £160,000-£170,000 a year to keep a patient in a secure mental health unit and by anyone's measure that's a lot of money. I do think, though, that alongside the £15 million worth of damage just to the schools alone that he's responsible for, not to mention the upset and disruption and just chaos, really, that he caused. And God, you know, whoever knows how much the churches are going to cost to restore... I think that unless you plan to keep someone 
like him under lock and key for the rest of his life investing in meaningful and focused care and rehabilitation is probably your only plan of action when times are tough though and money is short I guess it'd be easy just to complain that the money would be better spent on the kids whose schools and education were disrupted and the communities that were affected by the the fires at their churches as opposed to on Brady himself and that prison is the place for him but I think anyone who pays the slightest attention to the world knows that despite what we're told prison is not a holiday camp it's not like a hotel and inmates really don't live the life of Riley conditions I think everyone understands are harsh the buildings are in a dire state and the prison workforce is utterly demoralised being in prison there's little opportunities to address the crimes that those that are in prison there have committed and reoffending rates are spiralling out of control without wanting to editorialise too much prison fails the public by not offering those sent there with the slightest opportunity to change even if they've committed relatively mundane crimes an offender like whose behaviours are complex and deeply rooted in his entire sense of self I think I think only a fool wouldn't think treatment was worth giving a try Okay.